Maybe don't know. Maybe don't. This time, 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 What's up, everybody? I am your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to episode 99 of the Power Company podcast, brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. I am back in Lander, Wyoming, after a hectic month of wedding, climbers festival, furiously finishing the machine shop, uh, thanks to some help from Nate, and outdoor retailer. And I've been trying to cobble together a sport climbing season of sorts, mostly doing new pitches, rebuilding a sport climbing base. Um, Because I've been mostly bouldering and business building since shoulder surgery back in April 2015. And I'm looking forward to trying hard on a rope again, really hard, I mean, uh, this fall. You can hear more on that at the We Scream Like Eagles podcast, which you can get for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash Podcast. There's a link to that right there in your show notes on your pocket supercomputer. And really, that site is set up so that you can support what we're doing here and then get bonus content. It's a bonus. That's why we call it bonus content. Um, And whatever you think we're worth, dollar and up, sky's the limit. And thanks for supporting. Anyway, the recent trip to OR was productive, but honestly not as productive for me as CWA was. Um, the Climbing Wall Association Summit earlier this year, which is where I sat down with today's guest, Tande Catillo. And this was a really long anticipated conversation for me. And I prepared for it by going to a great presentation from Tande at the CWA. Um, I got there early, ready to take notes. And good thing, because the room was jam-packed with a who's who of setters, shapers, gym managers, gym owners, athletes. Every seat was filled and every standing spot was taken. Absolutely jam-packed. On the way out of the room, I caught up with a couple of industry vets to get their take. First, episode 45 guest, Jason Kale. I was hoping to see what the next futuristic move was going to be. <laughs> that was my intent of coming, but uh, it dictates what the next future. Yeah, futuristic everyone was going to go home and set it. But uh, <laughs> no, really, um, I think what I got most out of it is that we're all still learning. Yeah, we're at the you know the beginning of what's going on and the route setting, and I think just getting people together like this, I think that's like the first step. Yep. And uh, yeah, we're all kind of in the same boat. We all want to know what's next and totally and what's happening. But yeah, and it's cool to see people who think way outside the box like mm-hmm. you do, you know, being willing to accept that maybe there needs to be some sort of standard yeah. for all of this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just willing to accept anything, you yeah. know, like <laughs> I, I see moves. I, I really don't like, you know, the finish where you have to put your fingers in the right, box. Right. Like I can't totally. handle that because I'm an outside climber. But <laughs> it's funny that I can't handle that because it is cool. And he talked about it in his yeah. presentation. Yep. And I do remember that moment. Yeah, I do too. And it affected me even though I can't stand it. So <laughs> uh, yeah, being awesome. open to all that. Yeah, yeah. cool. 
And after Jason, I cornered Paul Jung, who works for the Cliffs Climbing and Fitness in New York, and got his thoughts on both Tande's presentation and just the conversation around route setting in general. Um, I think it's just um, just to just continue to learn and continue to self-educate myself and just um you know i think if you you always you're always learning because i think when you stop learning yeah um i think we're kind of done right yeah and he totally embodies that you know mm -hmm. and with the growth of the sport the growth of the community the gym boom that's happening mm -hmm. you know i think it's really important that we keep learning absolutely you know yeah. and i just talked to jason kale and i i mentioned that i thought it was really cool to see you walk in to see typhus walk in to see jason walk in to see all these big names in the you know the gym world the shaping world the setting world all kind of coming together to have this one conversation you know is what will you take from this and apply to what you do at the cliffs um really just all of it you know when it comes to that and just using um like kind of Tunde's ideas and the way he sees things um just because Maybe I see things slightly differently, but I yeah. can take kind of what his perspectives are and take just the ideas and values that he has and incorporate it into the way we do things. Yeah. Um, and then bring it back to the team and like, hey guys, here's a really cool idea. How come we didn't think about this before? And I think that's what's important about this kind of things like that, about getting, like you were saying, getting kind of like the experienced shapers, experienced route setters together because we all learn from each other. Totally. Right? Then we take that back and utilize those values that we all learn and take it back to the younger team, yeah, yeah. you know, or something yep. like that too. So, yeah. Yeah. How many years have you come to CWA? Uh, this is only my second year it's and I think second. this year is actually extremely important because that value of route setting it seems to like really be focused this year yeah. um, quite a bit uh, and it shows because this it's packed, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the room was packed and I think that's one of their big focuses was that they wanted to really talk about a few interesting topics that are kind of at a you know at a zeitgeist in the community right now and mm -hmm. and this was one of them for sure mm -hmm. so are you going to the route setters round table or yeah any of those absolutely I think that's cool. extremely valuable uh, i think that's gonna be a really really important thing for all of us and the only thing that's gonna be lacking with that was is timing or yeah, time totally you know, i think it's like an hour and 15 minutes yep. like we're not even gonna break the ice with that kind of time yeah. you know cool. but i think it's gonna be rad to put route setters all together and just gather ideas from each other and learn from each other yep awesome well yeah. cool thanks for thanks for chatting with me man uh, I no appreciate worries, Chris. It. I appreciate it thanks yeah it's these things and the way i'd heard tande described almost in hushed reverential tones that made me chase down this conversation to begin with with climber father route setter and deep thinker tande catillo it doesn't really matter what I dream it's going to be or what I hope it's going to be, that would be unrealistic. The answer to all these questions will define the place where root setting and climbing will be in 5, 10, 15 years. I love the photos that you post of her with like the hip hop record of the day or old jazz or whatever it is, yeah. you know? <laughs> I love those, man. Those are those are some of my favorite Instagram posts. <laughs> Thank you. They're really fun to do. Uh, we I started buying vinyl the year she was born uh, because 
my idea was I wanted to I wanted her to grow up listening to good music, yeah, not shitty MP3s. Yep. And uh, and so it just became a game where you know she we sometimes she'd dress up and you know. And we do a photo shoot, and it's just a fun thing to it's do. It's so cool. Yeah. It's, it's cool. so cool. And they're all great <laughs> records, so. Uh, yeah, um, I try. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Well, man, first, I, I appreciate you sitting down. I know you're it's busy a pleasure. with these it's, things. It's been and, a long time coming, Chris. Yeah, it has. <laughs> it has. I'm stoked for it. Yeah. So I've heard you described as all sorts of, like, ethereal creatures, oh, you goodness. know, like... <laughs> I've heard you described as Buddha and as a samurai and as a ninja and as Yoda. Um, I am none of those things. <laughs> but there's a reason that people are describing you that way, you know. And today, listening to your presentation, one thing I thought was really interesting was that you aren't, and refreshing as well as interesting, is that you aren't pretending to have answers when you don't you're yeah. just saying the questions are okay let's mm -hmm. ask the questions yeah you know why why is that why don't you feel pressured to answer the questions uh maybe it has to do with root setting <laughs> okay um i wrote a paper a few years ago that actually referenced in the talk this morning um where i described root setters as experts in uncertainty yeah, because yeah, you said that today, you get paid to be uncertain. Yeah, it's kind of a weird idea, but, you know, there's this idea, especially in competitions, you know, we, we finish setting and the round is about to begin and you can come up and ask me, so how is it going to go? And I genuinely don't know. I'm sweating bullets because I right. hope it's going to go well. Right. And, you know, that wacky idea that was funny when we came up with it, but now is on the wall and athletes are actually going to climb it. It might not be funny if it doesn't work, you know? Yeah, totally. We, we might end up looking silly. Has that gotten easier for you over time or well, harder? No, it's gotten easier in the sense that I just am more comfortable with the fact that I don't know. And so I think that's kind of expanded to, you know, how I approach, I, I mean, I'd even say life in general, but, you know, the issues I have in my work is it's okay to not know, you know? Um, yeah. And... Sometimes you figure it out and sometimes you don't, but at least you're like being positive and honest about trying to move forward. So yeah. that's where I'm at. Well, that, that kind of leads me into something I was going to save for later, but I'll just jump into it. Mm -hmm. um, you talked in your, in your presentation about focusing on the process rather than having a finished product, mm -hmm. you know, that you don't expect the setters who come to your workshops to yep. have a finished product at the end. Yep. And that led me to wonder, is it then counterintuitive or does it counter the idea that maybe a climber in their training and their practice should be focusing on the process as well when there's a, a finish hold mm -hmm. and you like the goal oftentimes is to complete a boulder so mm -hmm. is that counter to that idea how no. do you see that working i mean i think it works the same way uh that countless examples of climbers doing really well until that last move yeah and you know just losing it because they think they're mm -hmm. done and basically they lose concentration and a foot slips or yeah. you know um Lord knows I fell with my face in front of the anchors on yeah. so many times because oh, yeah. I yeah. thought it was done. All the time. And, you know, you're holding a jug, but it doesn't mean it's done. Right. You know? And um, just having that attitude of focusing until it's finished, 
is one thing. Um, but at the same time, uh, I mean, I'm going to get tagged guru again, but it's being in the moment. When you're climbing and there's mm -hmm. several movements and, you know, there's a foot position to be maintained, there's a breath to be taken. Yeah. Just like staying focused on that and not getting ahead of yourself. Yep. Even if your arms are screaming at you or it's if you're just there and you're okay with it and you're just like focused on that and not like I have to do this because it's this great or I think those is quite an important idea so yeah I do I do as well I mean mm -hmm. that's what we coach I find it tough when there are finish holds like there's a box around this finish hold and mm -hmm. that becomes the goal so yeah. how do you get root setters to not be focused on let's finish a problem let's Let's have a finished product. How do you get them to focus more on the process? Um, I think it goes through answering questions. It's like uh, trying to identify what a given, like a particular issue is with a boulder problem or a root. Yeah. Why is it not working the way we want it? Uh, what aspect of, um, uh, you know, of the climbing doesn't, doesn't jive with the result we're going for? And what can we do about it? You know, mm -hmm. um, Sometimes we'll bend the rules. We'll put a different grade on it. Sometimes we'll, you know, because that's the best approach. Because really, we just managed to find some incredibly cool little move that accidentally chanced upon, you know, the setting we were doing. Right, right. And giving it up right now really doesn't seem like a good idea. When you're lucky enough to find something that rich or interesting, mm -hmm. keep it. It's not the grade. <sighs> okay, let's try and bring it within the range and... Sometimes you just have to give it up. Like in a comp, if you set something yeah. that's way too hard, it doesn't matter how cool it is. If it's not going to make the event work or, you know, create the excitement, but at least you know why you're doing it. Yeah. You do it with a broken heart, but... Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. So, do you often try to set specific moves? Like, do you have a move in mind oftentimes? Or do you... I mean, what's the process look like for you when you're staring at just a group of holds on the ground? It's quite variable. Um... Actually, I make a point to not start with holds. Okay. I make a point to start... Um, actually, my favorite way to set these days is, is to look for an emotion. So... Cool. Uh, in, in Talk to me about in, this. <laughs> in competitions in particular, like, the circuit is putting the climber through a sequence of emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and a, cl a classic example is... I, I don't know if people think about this this much, but... Um, Sometimes the frustration we create for the climbers is deliberate. Sure. You know, we will create something that's it's not a good boulder. It's unclimbable. But the question that's being asked to them as athletes is how do you deal with this difficult emotion? Right. You know, and can you, can you pull yourself together and just deal with the fact that it's a nasty piece of climbing that just has to be dealt with? Or are you going to fall apart emotionally? Yeah. And if you do, how quickly can you recover from that? Are the five minutes in the chair enough or not? You know, and yeah. and then if you deal with something pleasant after that, but your brain's still dealing with like, I should have this, I should have that, I'm not so good. You're shooting yourself in the foot. That's not me as a setter. Right. That's you as an athlete. And yeah. that's what we're testing. You know, that's that's the level on which we're trying to to find out, you know, of course, we test strength and we test, you know, movement, but we also test, test mental fortitude and, you know, the capacity for strategy. So, yeah, and you, you just alluded to the fact that you like to set in circuits. Mm -hmm. So, um, whether it's a comp or just a commercial set, yeah. um, you aren't 
you aren't looking at it as a singular problem. You're you're setting, you're almost creating these albums that mm-hmm. that you're letting your daughter or, or you know, teaching your daughter about. Yeah. You know this this whole range of emotions, this whole story is being told. Yeah. Through this whole circuit, I think story is a really good word for it. Um, and there's this idea that, for example, uh, to win a competition, it's not how good you are at certain things; it's how not bad you are at other things. Right, right. You know where your your <clears throat> weakest weakness. You know, so yeah, yeah. You're supposed to flash the crimp problem because you're a crimp climber, and right. it's a given. That was never going to be the problem. But can you do this weird sideways jump, or can you do this strange slab mantle problem? You know, right. um, and so I think it's really an important thing about acknowledging what a good climber is, is not somebody who's a one-trick pony. It's somebody who's adaptable, who deals with diversity, who can shift gears, who can, you know, surprise you and be inventive. And when I, when I am creating challenge in a competition, that's what I'm testing. And when I'm trying to teach people um, how to climb better, I'm trying to tell them, you know, yeah, you're great at crimping, well done, but that's not, that doesn't mean you're a good climber. Right. Uh, you know, you have to be able to do more different things than that. Yeah, I, I saw, uh, I was at the World Cup in Vail last year, and I'll be there again this year, I'm seeing it actually, um, but last year I was standing right by Women's 3, I think, and Shauna Coxie came out, and her first attempt was nowhere close to the standard that had already been shown, Yeah, and I thought, oh man, she's going to blow it, you yeah. know, and then I watched her look at the problem and I saw her looking in the opposite direction of where everyone else had climbed Mm -hmm. and I'm like what is she doing and then she turned around to the judge and said you know is this wall in Mm -hmm. and he's like I I guess it is you know and he had the same reaction I did like why would you even ask that question yeah and she lets some of her time run out and then she gets on does the problem next try using the wall the entire way yeah and I'm like, holy shit, I never would have seen that. You know, never would have occurred to me. Yep. And that's what makes Shauna Coxie the champion that she is, mm-hmm. is because she can see those things. Yeah. How do you react when someone totally, you know, for lack of a better word, breaks a boulder that, that you've set? I'm excited. Yeah. Honestly, uh, my job, especially in competitions, is to create, you know, uh, is to ask climbers a bunch of questions and see what they come up with. Right. And truthfully, uh, I don't need them to give me the answer I want. It's not, it's not a, there isn't a single right answer to the question that I'm asking. Climbing is, uh, I think one of the greatest, like one of the things that attracts me the most about climbing is it's about imagination. Yeah. And she had the imagination to like see something different in a different way that nobody else saw. Right. That's cool. I think that's awesome. And, uh, you know, uh, I always, you know, of course, when you're, when I was a younger setter, I, I felt, I, I experienced it as a failure. Like, oh, I wasn't good enough as a setter to right. not see that yeah. that was, yep. but all kinds of, uh, even outdoors, this happens. You know, somebody totally. finds new beta for something. Yep. They came up with, you know. Something that's been done for 20, 30 exactly. years. Exactly. And I think that's okay. You know, yeah. that's, so, so in a way, like, if things that are happening in real climbing outdoors are also happening in competitions, I'm doing something right. I'm close to the sport that I'm trying to produce and emulate. Yeah. So I just have to give it to them. They had the imagination to see something that I didn't see. And good yeah. for them. 
That's really cool. And you you just said that you're trying to reproduce, emulate outdoor climbing. Do you think that's is that what most setters are doing or should be doing no, or I mean, are we creating something totally different? I think I'm trying to emulate not uh, outdoor climbing. I'm trying to emulate the experience of climbing. Okay. So the emotions that you go through, the frustrations of projecting, gotcha, the satisfaction gotcha. of solving the puzzle, the because really that's what climbing is. And we really don't care if it's like on wooden holds, on plastic holds, or we play the game anyway. Right. What we like is, you know, especially if we're boulderers is, you know, solving the puzzle yeah so that's what i'm trying uh, you know when i when i reference outdoor climbing i'm referencing really the experience and not so much the movement or like there's a long history of you know people trying to reproduce a climb that right. they really loved and right i think it's been done enough that we know it doesn't work right it's like generally not a good idea mm-hmm. um and i think as but you can reproduce those emotions. But you can reproduce the emotions. Yeah. yeah. The frustration that being at the limit, the, you know, right. that. The, the having to channel everything you've got exactly. for this move. Yeah. And you're holding on to a piece of rock or you're holding on to a piece of planet, plastic. You still have that same, you know, emotion, especially if you're on a stage in front of, you know, thousands of people. It just yeah. amplifies it. I think you just, you just slipped and told everyone your actual guru-ness because you said you're holding on to a piece of a planet <laughs> a planet and, and now everyone's imagining you <laughs> you're holding planets in your hands <clears throat> that's going to be the cover of this podcast oh, for no. sure <laughs> um give me yoda ears at least totally you're definitely going to get yoda ears <laughs> you said something else about setting in your presentation that well first off let me let me start this by saying that I think our first interaction mm-hmm. uh, online was after your Chalk Talk interview yeah. with John. Yep. And you said something in the Chalk Talk interview that when I first heard you say it, I was a little bit mad. Oh, and yeah? I'm, I'm not a setter mm-hmm. by any means. Um, I appreciate what setters do hugely. Um, and you said that you don't see it as an art. Mm-hmm. You said you don't, you try not to use the word art. Mm-hmm. And actually in your presentation today, I was waiting for you to say art because I was just going to call you out on it. <laughs> but you didn't do it. <laughs> and, and at first I was upset, but then you explained yourself and you see it as design. Mm-hmm. And after hearing you explain that several times, I agree with you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think it can be seen as an art, depending yep. on your definition of art. But Agreed. but with your definition of it, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Um, before I ask this question, explain to us what you mean by it's design and not art. Well, um, I studied art in school mm-hmm. uh, for several years and uh, painted and took photographs and drew and wrote, did all kinds of things. Um, something about art that it really needs no purpose right you just do it if you feel like it Mm -hmm. and you you're trying to express things you're trying to communicate deep emotions your visions of the world you know and there's really no constraints to on the contrary the less constraints they are on how you express that basically the better and in art creativity is going to find you know the connection between this idea and and connecting it to you know, some medium or some image or something right. that's going to express right. it the best. Um, but the reality of root setting is that, you know, we have a problem to solve. 
we have to construct something that's going to fit a certain grade or that's going to fit a certain need. And um, I absolutely don't deny that there's a huge creative component in that. Absolutely. You know, which, which requires imagination. It re requires like playfulness and, you know, um, you know, trying to find, trying to surprise people. And, and those yeah. are attributes that belong to art, you know. But on top of that, there's a lot of technical constraints, um, you know, that are physical, that are athletic, that are, you know, uh, connected to the needs that either the business or the competition need. And all those things much more relatable in, a, in, the, in the context of design, you know. You need yeah. to design a new Mercedes-Benz. It needs to be beautiful. It needs to be, you know, to give you an emotion when you see it drive down the street. But it's also a piece of engineering that, you know, has mechanical constraints, that has production constraints. And, and I think that's much closer and much more realistic to the, the expectation that we yeah. have with root setters. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, I hadn't looked into it that deeply until I heard you say that. And, and in fact, I would have thought calling it an art was a, was a deeper way to look at it. Mm -hmm. But... But in reality, I think your version of it takes a very, you know, a very uh, Yoda-esque look at it, but also is very pragmatic, mm -hmm. which, which is also something that surprised me about your presentation today, that the first thing you talked about was safety. Yeah. Like, everyone's there because they want to see you hold planets in your hands <laughs> because you're this guru. Yeah. But... The first thing you talk about is safety. We we need to be wearing safety glasses. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Why go there first? Because, I mean, I'm pragmatic because the the it's the reality of my day to day job. I know personally ten people who've been to the ER to get steel taken out of their eyes. Right. That's not cool. Doesn't right, matter totally. how creative you are, or how <laughs> yeah. many planets you're holding, <laughs> it's not cool to have steel in your eyes. So we can either pretend that, you know, it's not happening, or we can just put safety glasses on. It's as yeah. simple as that. Yep. And I think it's, you know, it's the attributes of growing up as a sport. It's just becoming more mature. Mm -hmm. And we used to be the crazy kids who you did all kinds of crazy things. Right. And with the growth of the industry, the growth of the sport, with stepping into the Olympics, very naturally, we have mm. to take a couple things a little bit more seriously. Um, otherwise, essentially, somebody's going to get hurt. And it's yeah, cool. and, you know, I think having those rules, you know, where initially we were the, the rule breakers, the yeah. ruleless, you know, kids out there, having those rules also plays to your definition of design, yeah. you know, as opposed to just an art, just this freewheeling, free-spirited thing. Definitely. Um, also, yeah. I'd like to do this as long as possible. Uh, yeah. You know, and if, I, if I'm not paying attention to th things like this, I'm not going to last. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think uh, I, I've been lucky enough to, to have, you know, I did a lot of things first in route setting, you know, exchanges, travels, doing different types of courses, you know, I've definitely, you know, tried to push and innovate a lot of things, but it's meaningless if the people who come behind me are just going to trip over the same things I tripped over and make the same mistakes. So I do have this idea that I want, you know, I want it to be at least a little easier for the people who come behind me and have a passion for route setting yeah. and they at least can take a little step up and they can create better conditions for the generation that come after them and 
hopefully we get somewhere good. Yeah, and I think it, you know, one thing that struck me when I saw that that first slide talking about safety mm-hmm. was that if if I had just gone to a here's how to set a root clinic yeah. with just some random person and they flashed this safety slide, I wouldn't have paid as much attention yeah. as I did when it came from you. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm here to learn the the ethereal secrets of route setting, you know? <laughs> and then he's like, safety. And I'm like, oh yeah, shit, you're right. <laughs> so I think coming from you, because this this route setting community is very um clicky is the wrong word, mm-hmm. but it's it's very tight. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's you know, there's a lot of respect in this community, mm-hmm. which I find really interesting. And yeah. I'm I'm just kinda on the surface of it seeing it. Um, but I think coming from you, it probably means more than seeing it on a poster or yeah. in a safety video at the gym or yeah. whatever. Yeah, it makes you know? a difference. Uh, you know, I didn't really necessarily want to be as well known. It wasn't my goal. It sure. was, you know, but as I am. It probably wasn't Yoda's goal either. It wasn't, but, you know, <laughs> once you have that responsibility, then, you know, you you just have to again it's growing up you know yeah. it's acknowledging the things that i've done in my career have brought me to this point and uh man, there's a lot of perks like i'm i feel so lucky i get to travel i get to work with incredible people um i get to you know i teach so many i see so many young talented root setters and i get to you know i have the opportunity to meet so many people it's really great and it's because of all the work that i did before and it comes with also just a little bit of responsibility to spread good messages, you know, and try and... Sure. So, yeah, it's it's easy enough, you know. It's like, yeah, you know, throw planets around. It's really great, but <laughs> don't just put safety glasses when you do it. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. It's as simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you said something else today, or it you did say it actually, and it, it was also on your slide that surprised me a little bit and I have a question about you said that one of the great things and I and I'm paraphrasing here and I'll probably screw it up but it's okay that one of the great things about comps and setting is that the climbs are climbed the way they're supposed to be on site yeah um is there a difference in how you set for an on site comp versus a gym a commercial gym setting where it's going to be worked on over time yeah uh or do you prefer your commercial gym setting to also be seen as an on-site challenge i i don't look at it that way um what i said about comps is that it gets climbed in very specific controlled conditions okay so that gives you a certain feedback on how you how, how you did your job when you set a boulder in the gym, somebody might get on it and fall off the first move. The problem is that person may not be a climber of the grade. Right. Or maybe, you know, uh, in the wrong mindset or, you know, is not trying hard enough. Or <clears throat> there's all kinds of reasons that might give you false feedback. So what, I'm, what, what interests me in competitions is that controlled environment, 100% on-site, given limited time, you know, ISO, uh, the pressure, and then also climbers who came there to do it like they're not just bumbling around on a sunday or they really want to do this boulder and if nobody can do it in those conditions 
Well, that tells you something about how you were thinking about your root setting process. Right. Um, but overall, I basically set the same if I'm setting for an on-site comp or I'm setting for, um, you know, beginners in the gym. The difference, the distinction that I make is, again, this is an idea that I borrow from design, is I start with who am I setting for? And clearly when you're setting for, you know, a really motivated uh, athlete who's been training for this event for a year and who has 10, 15 years of competition climbing and experience under their belt and they have sponsors that they're trying to, you know, they're making a living doing this. Yeah. The intensity and the intention they're gonna put in their climbing is different from a lady who's just like trying something new on a Sunday and sure. you know just wants to try something different. And Why is it always on a Sunday that they're bumbling around? <laughs> <laughs> is that the uh, only day we get to bumble? Uh, when you have kids, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you start bumbling at around 6 a.m. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. I, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, do you prefer to see your climbs? You know, your roots, your designs do you prefer to see those in the competition setting and watch it be attempted by someone who came there to do that as opposed to just watching someone try to figure it out in the gym no doesn't matter to no. you what i'm really interested in is uh in general in root setting is like capturing some kind of i've said this many times an emotion you yeah know, getting people to react putting bits of plastic, bits of colored plastic and pieces of wood on a wall and somebody's going to walk up to it and feel an emotion. Mm -hmm. I think that's like quite a thing to do. Yeah. Are and you like in the background cheering when people get pissed off at the boulders that you wanted them to get pissed off at? No. I mean, <laughs> it's different. It's funny because sometimes like a boulder will work perfectly in a competition in terms of result. Yeah. And I'll be bored. I was like, yeah, it's cool. It worked. We got a result. And, but nothing really happened. Gotcha. Some people climbed it. It was like a little predictable and, you know, <clears throat> I like it when like that problem you described with Shauna, something unexpected happened, Yeah, you know, and there's, there's a, an element of surprise on her face. You know, there's uh, Petra Klinger's face at world championships when she stuck mm. the toe hook. Yeah. That is like, for me, the end all of climbing. Yep. And if that happens on a stage in front of 10,000 people or in the gym, because some kid just climbed their first V2 and they're like running to their mom to tell them about it same value for me like that's the mark of success you know for um yeah for my work yeah that that's really awesome um one other thing that you said in talking about you know the difference between gyms or setting in a commercial gym and setting for a comp is that when you're when you're setting in a commercial gym it's part of your responsibility to help climbers get better um mm. i've heard you say this about or to help them improve yeah um and that's your circuits do that so talk to me a little bit about that and why you feel like it's your responsibility to do that i don't feel like ne necessarily it's my responsibility as as in the sense that every root setter should do that i just feel like as as a root setter that's that's what i'm most interested in mm -hmm. getting people to there's so many, as you progress as a climber, there's so many like little discoveries you make about yourself, you know, about like, oh, if I think about this this way, I can actually succeed more easily. You know, I put myself in a certain mindset. Climbing taught me that. Right. 
if I if I don't panic, I can succeed more easily. Right. Climbing taught me that, <clears throat> and it applies to lots of things in life. So I just like this idea that you know, climbing can bring positive things into people's lives, and. If I'm going to spend so many hours, you know, traveling and putting plastic on the wall, I want to be doing it for a reason. Yeah. And that's the reason I chose. It's yeah. like, I love climbing. I want to share it with you. And I want you to understand that if you invest time into it, good things will come to you. So, but that's just me. I don't think it's, sure, sure. you know, the responsibility of all setters. I think lots of people do it for different reasons. Sure. Yeah. Now, these journeys that you're building for these climbers when you're creating your circuits mm -hmm. is it do you follow a, some sort of formula or model for the emotions you're looking for is it always that you're trying to help them improve you're trying to teach them lessons of of frustration and of you know working through a puzzle and you know whatever the emotions might be is sure. it is it something similar every time or does it depend on what album you listen to that morning yeah basically um and it also depends on who i'm working with because like i mentioned also this morning i think almost always it's a team effort right and it's about bringing all the different energies and ideas from all these different people mm -hmm. and especially now that I'm like more often in like a head root setting situation. Right. It's more about organizing things, you know, and getting, getting everything to be a nice palette and a nice balance so that people get a little bit of everything, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, there's, there's no, there's no formula. It's like asking a chef, like, how do you make the best recipe? There's, you know, you go in the kitchen in the morning and like, Ooh, we've got fresh <laughs> this today, yeah, you know, yep. and that's your starting point. Yeah. Oh, if we're doing, you know, if we're doing this for the main course, we should do a dessert that has lemon in it. Cause that would be a nice compliment, you know? And like somebody in the kitchen's like, ah, too much sweet stuff. Let's do something that has, you know, bite and okay, let's do that. Let's do a nasty little slab in the corner there. And because because it creates a picture, you know, right. all together. So, so no, and, and it's, it's a really, I think as a creative, that's where, you know, a lot of the fun is, is yeah. you, you do creation on the individual boulder, but then an extra layer is that level as a circuit where how does everything go together? Mm -hmm. You can cook one dish, but can you make a great meal? Right. And then you can use that same dish and make the meal different around it and it's a different experience. Totally. Yeah. So those are the ideas, but, you know, I think... Yeah, on the contrary, people need to stay in tune to what what the climbers want in the gym, what they're enjoying, mm -hmm. what are they good at and bad at. You know, that's where the responsibility <clears throat> where comes into play, where if we trend to too much one way, you know, everything's a run and jump. Dinos are always to the right or, you right. know, footholds are always this size. Then we are creating, you know, potholes that, you know, is going to result in failures for them and frustrations. And yep. so we have to keep to keep them growing. To keep changing things up and you know surprising them surprising ourselves if we can and it's fun yeah you you also talked about you know gyms should have their their own flavor and mm -hmm. kind of create their own aesthetic yeah and and be okay with that that yeah. it shouldn't be homogenized yeah so when when you're going to these gyms and working with groups of setters how do you try to tune into what that aesthetic is and, and help them develop it? Or do you? I do, yeah. I, one of my favorite moves as a setter is, and I do this in comps too, is there's always a moment when it's like, okay, well, pick what you want to climb. 
pick what you sorry pick what you want to set you know and yeah. everybody kind of like kind of scrambles to get that wall or this volume or right. they all have their go-to yeah and i i used to be part of that you know and then after a while what i started doing is just waiting just waiting for the last available thing and just okay i guess i'm setting you know even waiting for other people to start setting and to see what is not there yeah and just add something different because that also creates like a challenge for me sure i wasn't planning to set 45 degree with you know this or i was kind of wanting to set for men but actually i'm setting a boulder for women this time and so it's just yeah it, uh, i try and be attentive to what's happening in each climbing community i get to travel to lots of different countries and they all have different you know pros and you know strengths and weaknesses is the right you know word and stylistic preferences sure and, and i try and always take a counterpoint you know bring them something new if you're paying for me to come and i just do the same that you already have what's the point right you know totally. so that's that's my approach to it yeah and so when you're working with these groups of setters mm -hmm. and, and you're big on communication and, you know, working as a team, yeah. how do you avoid running the risk of, of chopping someone's creativity off? Um, if they're uh, wrong, isn't even the correct word, but you know, if they're doing things that just don't fit, that just don't work, that just, um, don't elicit the response you're looking for. Yeah. How do you deal with talking to that person, working with that person to get them to understand your vision? And and I ask this because I've seen setters mm -hmm. in the past just just chop people like this is no good. Yeah. And they just redo it. Yeah. You know, and I don't think that's a very effective way. So um, it depends because once if you've established uh, that. Um, confidence in the communication mm -hmm. if there's trust within the team and if somebody you trust comes behind you and says dude I think your boulder is not going to work I think this is this is you're going down the wrong track and you trust that person you take a step back and you'll reconsider what you're doing because there's the trust right you know you only hear them because of that uh, if there isn't that trust and you just get getting slammed you just want to tell them to sod off you know and you're not even listening to the feedback even if it's relevant mm -hmm. so yeah, that's why I feel like doing a bit of work on communication, you know, and communication is a big word because sometimes it's as simple as like just going to have dinner with the setters the night before, you know, right. getting to know who you're working with and chatting about what people are interested in and where they're coming from. And it's as simple as that, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I try to always explain what I do and I ask people if they're okay with it. And when they're not, Sometimes, you know, it's happened before that I just take down a boulder because I, I changed down my boulder, which I thought was good because theirs is going to fill a gap and I just switch up mine. So right. like, as long as the comp ends up working, you know, uh, you can't force people to learn. Yeah, I so. think that's a really interesting approach. And I, you know, the, the explain yourself, I think, is really important. Yeah. Um, it's something I started with my daughter when she was very little yeah. because I had noticed parents just saying, and it happened to me when I was a kid, my, yeah. my parents just saying, no, no, no. Yeah. And I'm like, why? Yeah. And no one ever explained it. Mm -hmm. um, so something I tried to implement with her was I can say no, yeah. but I have to explain why I'm saying no. Yeah. And, 
And I think that really did go a long way toward her being able to come to me later mm-hmm. and really valuing the opinion that I had. Yeah. You know, and knowing that it's going to be a conversation and yeah. not just no. Yeah. You know, because people tend to avoid no's anytime they can. Yeah. You know. And I think that's not a good thing, you know. The same way I feel like it's important to be able, in a setting team, to be able to tell somebody when a boulder isn't good. Mm-hmm. It's like, everybody kind of knows it, everybody's seeing it, but nobody wants to say it. Yep. Whereas if we just, if we have that space to communicate, like setting a boulder literally can take 10 minutes in the right conditions. Yeah. We could fix something that will have a huge impact on the quality of the event, you know, make it a better experience for the spectators, for... You know, as long as we acknowledge it and there's space for that communication to happen. Yeah. And it's so, a design team. Yeah. Basically. And it's, it's actually a tiny effort with regards to the, like, the, the payback, you know, what you get out of just making a tiny effort to communicate and to have that five minute difficult conversation about the fact that it's not a great boulder and maybe we could try changing it. Uh, and you do change it and you end up in such a better place. Yeah. So I've... I've experienced that too many times to neglect it now. And I really think it's, yeah, for root setting, a really important aspect. Yeah. When you're, when you're team building or when you're building trust with your, your team of setters, something you mentioned today was that part of building a good setting team should be that you send them outside to climb on mm-hmm. as many types of rock and, you know, experience different things. Yeah as often as possible is that something you do like with the setting team is it is it a team effort do they do you propose sending them out individually what's the best way for gym owners to think about it well that's a big question because it's a new line item that nobody's considered yet Mm -hmm. and um as nick mentioned in his talk like we don't exactly know how to value it you know right um but i think uh it's a decision. It's basically, I, I think, bringing everything back to what the owners and the root setters in that gym consider to be the vision of the gym and how seriously they take it will like, lead to a series of questions. You know? And I don't, think, I don't think you have to go outside. I just think from my perspective, with the type of climbing I want to have represented in my gym, mm-hmm. I want to make sure when I make a comment about something not being subtle enough or, you know... Uh, wanting, you know, more like a granite style style feeling to the climbing or more limestone. I want the people who are in front of me to understand what I'm talking about and to have that culture to back it. Be able to speak the same language. Exactly. So (laughs) it just seems logical that those people need to study and understand that. And if I'm asking them to do this job, it's not an expectation that, you know, they went to school or studied for it and they know these things. I know that's not a fact. So I'm pushing for that culture to be built you know and people yeah. to know these things yeah have these experiences so yeah. we can all speak the same language speak the about same them. languages yeah. and i'm not asking setters to like love limestone they don't have to i just want you right. to go out and try it and understand what it means right. when i say that you know sure. i don't want you to necessarily love trad climbing but i think you should go out and try and see what it is to hand jam for like you know but 30 feet 100 feet whatever yeah and and when we bring one of those moves into the gym and we decide that it's going to be interesting or not, there's some background to it, you know? We're not just like looking at videos and claiming we know what we're talking about. Right. So it's expertise in a way, you know? Building yeah. expertise mm-hmm. is, is also knowing things about climbing. Yeah, and I think that's just part of mastering any craft yeah. is kind of understanding where the language of that craft comes from. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it's hard to hard to master anything without understanding the history and the background and what it was built on. Yeah. So that's that's a really valuable part of it. You you also mentioned that setters need to be and, and I'm and I'm not saying this correctly. Setters don't need to be strong, mm-hmm. but it is a it is a commodity that is becoming more and more valuable. Yes. That's true. In the gyms. Yes. Um and I th- I get a lot of questions from setters about mm-hmm. how can I continue training mm-hmm. while setting mm-hmm. because it's a very physical job very. Um, and often physical in the same ways as climbing, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you're forerunning as well. Yeah. Um, how, how can you set up some sort of schedule or how can you help your setters become stronger? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a tricky one. Uh, it's a tricky one because first and foremost, like each person's climbing is really personal. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to go and tell somebody, you know, uh, it's tricky because it's part of their job, but it's usually also part of their life and their passion and, you know, how they choose to climb. Let's say that I have a setter who's not strong enough, but they're not training the right way. But that's basically part of their personal life. I can't go and tell them, you should do this, you have to do this, and da, da, da. What I can say is, I need you to be able to do these things and these things, you know? So, it's a little challenging. Um, what I do for myself is I, I try and make the forerunning as much a part of my training as possible. Okay. As part of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, I also try and be uh, realistic about my expectations um, in what I need to be able to climb to do my job. I don't need to send every single boulder. Right. I need to have an understanding of how the movement works and, you know, um, I've been setting for 20 plus years. I haven't, you know, I haven't climbed everything I've set. Um, I've set for World Cup. I'm nowhere near being a World Cup setter. Um, but, but I do try to get after it, you know, and I do try and, and, um, the reason I do it is because my job is just way more fun when I can climb more stuff. Sure. Being stronger just means if I can climb, you know, that V8, that V9 multiple times in an afternoon and then hop on something else and do something else, then I, I, I love it, you know? So that's yeah. my motivation. And I imagine that's why you started setting to begin with yeah. was because you loved the actual climbing the process. part of it, yeah. you know? You love the movement first and then then started trying to create the movement. Exactly. So whenever I work with a setting team, uh, you know, I, I do think it's healthy sometimes to have, you know, it's actually a bad thing to have everybody be a V10 climber because generating athletic empathy for what the difference between V2 and V3 is, is really hard when it just, you can't feel it. Yeah. Every hold feels giant. Every foot feels easy. And, yep. and so having that less experienced climber who's closer to the grade as long as they are doing their job the right way, which is bringing useful information and, you know, um, and I think it's just a more inclusive perspective to what the job of root setting is, is as long as people are being professional and being, you know, bringing the right attitude and practicing the right skills, then, you know, their climbing level is not the defining factor of how good a setter they are. Sure. It's just an element of it. I believe that about coaches yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, I, know, I know some gyms want coaches to be able to climb a certain level, but yeah. 
but I don't think that should even be part of the qualification. As long as you understand the movement, yeah. you understand the training, and you understand what's needed for these climbers to reach their goals. And and you have you're bringing legitimate information yeah. and experience that that makes up for the fact that you can't just prove you can climb it, right? You know, because there is something to be said for that. Like, I don't want to just sweep away the fact that, oh, it doesn't really matter if you can climb things. Sure. It sure. matters. You know, yeah. it's important to know that, to show that you can, you, you can do the moves and you can have an opinion about them uh, is, yeah, I think it's healthy. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's, it's important to not just look at... Uh, the position of root setting just through that tiny keyhole. Yeah, you know, yeah, so. yeah, I agree. And one thing that I've started to, to think about in terms of how to help root setters train more effectively is, is really taking a harder look at movement as opposed to just getting stronger. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely. Even the best root setters have movement deficiencies or movement oh, for sure. um you know ways that they gravitate toward mm -hmm. moving in a specific way yeah. and and i think it could be really helpful for them to learn to move in other ways and mm -hmm. that, that's a huge part of how we coach do you find the same thing in setting is it valuable for people to try to set outside of their normal movement go-to style um i think it is but i think there's another thing that's more important is that um and it's actually one of the evaluation points in the ifsc course is knowing yourself as a climber okay is being to acknowledge okay my strengths are slabs technical movements you know not too steep climbing very complex yeah i'm really good at those yep um if i on-site a very hard boulder in that style it doesn't mean it's not hard I'm really good at that stuff. On the flip side, put me on like big, huge pinches in a roof and I suck at those, even at like two grades below like what I'm supposed to be climbing. So, and that's, that's a reality of climbing, you know? Yeah, you, totally. You go outside and you can do whatever your project and you mm -hmm. get on something three grades below in a completely different style and you get <clears throat> spacked, you know? So, um, so I think this is the first step is, again, in, in the root setters process is understanding that. Being able to watch another team member who's good at something and be able to like automatically factor in the changes that need to be made because if she's floating that, that, that style of climbing, you know, that technical, powerful, red climbing, but we know she's really good at those climbs and the yeah. heel hooks and the body positioning and yep. she's got the science down just like so instinctively mm -hmm. it doesn't mean it's not v9 right you know it doesn't mean and i was going for v7 you know and she jumps down and goes yeah it's okay right no it's not okay <laughs> it's just exactly <laughs> what you know how to do right you know and um a colleague of mine travis uh who's the head setter at the seattle bowling project invented this thing called the rule of two where at least two people who are significantly different have to make significant progress on a boulder right. to make sure it's not a fluke and we're not seeing that, you know, oh yeah, somebody climbed it, you know? Yeah, but if, if somebody climbed it and it was exactly their style, then it doesn't mean much. It doesn't mean it's too hard or too easy. So I think that first step is understanding and once you understand that, then the next step is trying to set outside of those styles effectively and, you know, process that information into... So... Yeah, we try to address it. It's hard because, again, it's quite personal, you know, sure. to admit weaknesses and to, to, 
to have to be told that, oh, well, that's easy for you, you yeah. know, because you're good at that. Yep. Neither of those things are very pleasant, you know, right. sometimes. But they're really important to factor into your work if you want to do it effectively as a root setter. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, part of what you're talking about, the, the way you're able to see these, these roots as something different than just the grade mm -hmm. um, really talks to your, speaks to your um, RIC scale. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this is something that all of the, the hardcore root setting community who are listening to this already understand. They already speak this language. Yeah. Um, Which blows my mind, by the way. <laughs> it, it blows my mind, too. The first time I heard of it was on the Chalk Talk yeah. episode with you. And then when I was just in Texas emceeing Collegiate Nationals, yeah. a, a setter friend of mine, Miles, just alluded to it like, I mean, we all know about risk, intensity, complexity. And I'm yeah. like, do we? Do we? <laughs> like, yeah. who, is, who is we? Um, you know about it. Like, I've heard of it. Yeah. But I still don't quite understand it. Can you... Just spend a little bit of time trying to explain it to me and to all the people out there who are new to it. Sure. Um, why did you come up with it, first of all? So, I was trying to understand why grades didn't work. Yeah. How I could, we, a whole team of really experienced setters, setting at a World Cup, could put so much, I, I, guess I, was, I was there, I saw the process, hours and hours, literally, of effort, trying to get the ball to, to exactly where, where it needed to be. Right. <clears throat> And it wasn't. And we completely missed something. Either all flashes or like... No on tops. Or no or, on tops, which yeah. is more common actually. And, and we couldn't understand. I, I couldn't understand why that was. It was really frustrating to, to try so hard to do something right and it doesn't work. Yeah. And so I went on a mission to try and solve grades uh, on which I failed dismally. But on that mission, what I did discover is these three parameters that seem to pop up in relevant places consistently. And when I started focusing in on them, the aspect of risk, intensity, and complexity, they gave me an insight and an understanding of why something was more difficult, and even better, why something was difficult to a certain type of climber. Right. You know, so typically, um, you know, you can say what... What generalization could I make? Uh, Japanese climbers uh, right now are really good at risky climbing. Sure. You know, they, they are not afraid of committing. Yeah. And, the and you're talking perceived risk perceived, rather than, oh, than like just outright danger. Oh, no. Danger is never in the question. Okay. Yeah. This is the... So, the definition of risk is the, that feeling you get when you've done a dyno 10 times. You've done it 10 times before. It's like, it's a boulder you do all the time. You get in position to do it again. You look at the hold and all of a sudden your brain says, wait, wait, hang on, hang on just a minute. That hesitation where something should be straightforward and every rational thing tells you is no problem here, but there is something that holds right. you back. You right. know? Standing on a slippery foot, you know, uh, throwing for a seemingly elusive hold. Right, all the what ifs coming All the what ifs play. coming in your yeah. head and it's it's the evolution of risk has uh, sorry the definition of risk has evolved um as i've been working on it but really that mental challenge is is the definition of it and absolutely not injury for climbers right um that's something that i think just the plane should be banished indoors it's sure. unnecessary like yep. people can choose to and 
I don't know, you know, it's part of climbing and the yeah, legacy. Yeah, we're, we're going to get hurt regardless, yeah. but it shouldn't be But yeah, we never amplify. Exactly. If <clears throat> any situation that, you know, uh, and it's actually my worst nightmare. As a setter, the worst possible thing that can happen is somebody getting injured on something that I set. Right. So, um, so this idea of risk uh, in combination with like the physical intensity it takes to do a move and then add in basically the beta. When you know what to do, it's different than when you don't know what to do. Yeah. And, and again, this is a lesson from competitions. Like people, really competent climbers coming out of ISO and we've seen them climb incredible things indoors and out and they just don't get it. They right. don't get off the ground on this thing that we know for a fact is whatever, V7, V8, and it's perplexing. But when you understand that it's a very complex boulder, the grade becomes irrelevant. If you don't see, if you don't find the little gizmo, the little key to the puzzle, right. it doesn't matter what grade you've climbed or what you've onsighted, you're not going to do this boulder problem in five minutes. Yeah. And, and so breaking it, breaking basically the idea of difficulty in climbing, um, challenge into separate parts to be able to see the separate parts and analyze them and choose which ones we want to affect to make something, um, to affect the flavor of the challenge then these three elements have proved really helpful. Risk, intensity, and complexity. Okay. So. If you're trying to adjust intensity, mm -hmm. do you have like a, a, a checklist of sorts that you just, like this is the first thing I do to try to adjust, adjust the intensity. And this is generally the place I go next if it doesn't work there or... No. Because it's, it, it's going to depend on what the boulder problem is. Like, how do you adjust the physical intensity, for example, of a slab that has no hands on it? That's a really good question. Yeah, it's possible, <laughs> you know. Sure, you sure. You turn the feet sideways. Yeah. So you have to core up. Make the feet up a little worse. You, yeah. Yeah. So there is no go-to question, but at least you know what sensation you're going for. What is your specific objective? Because just saying making it harder doesn't solve the problem and is not constructive from the root setting perspective. Yeah. So. Well, you know... For a guy who doesn't have the answers, you sure have a lot of answers. Um, <laughs> I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> but when I when I posted on Instagram this morning, I, I came into your class. I was in there early, and I just posted a photo of your your future of of root setting. Yeah. Initial slide and <laughs> and I got like seven direct messages saying, well, what is the future set? <laughs> <laughs> which, which was hilarious to me because the whole point of it was, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the future of setting is, yeah. you know? Is there, and, and I'm going to ask you for an answer here, but is there a way to boil down, distill down your, your thoughts on where the future is headed in just a, a short little paraphrase no okay sorry i wish i could give <laughs> no. you an answer but i'd no, be making I something up i think that's perfectly fine <laughs> uh i have what i presented this morning where like it's kind of my like the scrapbook that's in my brain of all these questions that i don't have answers to that i feel are connected or related yeah some of them i feel like the answers don't belong to me they belong maybe to federations they belong to um, how how gyms are going to decide you know policy on certain things are they going to decide to pay more for root setting or not you know 
So it doesn't really matter what I dream it's going to be or what I hope it's going to be. That would be unrealistic. Um, but knowing that the outcome of certain decisions will affect uh, what the future is, that's kind of what I wanted to bring forward, you know, and just highlight, well, you know, listen, safety is a thing, you know, uh, regulation is a thing, education is a thing. What do you guys think we could do about these things? You know, what, what can you do at your level? Um, and the answer to all these questions is the, will define the place where root setting and climbing will be in 5, 10, 15 years. Cool. So I, I, just, I think if, if we put positive intentions, at least, yeah. into that effort, we're at least trying to go in the right direction. doesn't guarantee anything, but yeah, you don't sit and wait for it to fall out of the sky. You yeah. try and build it piece yeah. by piece. Yeah, you're just like that World Cup boulder that came there to do that problem. Yeah. You know, you may not get to the top, yeah. but you're you sure as hell going to try. You're going to try, which is another great lesson of climbing. Yeah. Just try. Okay. Well, man, I hugely appreciate you sitting down and this was, was awesome. A I feel pleasure. I'm like Luke Skywalker over here. So, <laughs> well, may the force be with you. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, man. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, I, for one, am already looking forward to the next time I get to talk with Tande, Mike, or not. I feel like I still have a lot to learn from his even nature and thoughtful process, particularly as I delve deeper into this business building and balancing it with my own climbing. And like Tonde recently said to me, I hope that happens at the base of some piece of rock somewhere. Uh, if you want to learn more about Tande, I've linked to his Instagram and a couple of videos in the show notes right there in your pocket supercomputer. Or you can visit a gym where he's setting. Um, it's on my bucket list, actually, to climb on Tonde circuits with the whole experience in mind, much like listening to an album. Speaking of which, that shuffle function should be illegal. Get rid of it. Listen to entire albums, for God's sake. Also, if you want to see the image of Tande with Yoda ears and holding planets in his hand, it does exist. There's a link to it right there in your show notes. I'm sure it'll make its way to my Instagram as well. All right, next episode is the Big 100. For that one, we've flipped the script a little bit. Nate will be sitting in the host chair and will be interviewing me. Uh, until then, you can find us at powercompanyclimbing.com. You can find us on the Instagrams, the Facebooks, and the Pinterests at Power Company Climbing. And you can look all day long for us on the Twitter, but you will not find us there because we don't tweet. We scream like eagles. This time, 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 this time